the second time that we went in the delivery room, we were pretty sure we were experts. We had decided already that we knew what we were doing. We knew what to expect. There you go. We knew what we were doing. We knew what to expect. And, and it was like, you, you've been there, right? Maybe you've, you've been in the delivery room. You've, had, you've been pregnant. You've had children. And for us, it was our second one. And so we kind of knew going in how to, how to, how to handle it this time. And so we're, we're going through the whole process, and I do the thing every husband does, which is at least three things I said were completely out of line and stupid, and I probably shouldn't have even been in the room in the first place. And at one point, I had to remind myself, don't complain about the fact that you've been standing on the floor all day, because that's not the worst pain anyone in this room is in. Like, like, you know how it is, right? Like, when you're in the delivery room, there's a lot happening, and there's a lot of things going on. And we got to this point, and we still felt pretty comfortable, because we knew we'd been here before, we knew we'd been through this experience, and then all of a sudden... What I thought was next didn't happen. You see, when Abel was born, Abel was three now. When Abel was born, he came out screaming like a banshee and hasn't stopped making noise for the last three years. Like, even in his sleep, he talks. Right? It's just the way he is, right? But Cohen was so completely different because, I, you know, it came the moment when she said, he's here, and she held him up, and I kept waiting because I knew what was supposed to come next was a sound. And the room was just silent. And I looked up just in time to see a little bit of panic on the midwife's face. And she turned her shoulders to me to try and shield me from what, from what was probably her concern. And she probably had done this before and she knew, but there's still that moment of every, every delivery, I'm sure, where it happens. And she's kind of pinching and poking and prodding and there's still just this silence. And I, and I watched all three of the nurses in the room kind of gather around her to almost try to shield us from what was going on. And it's at that moment that Whitney said, wait, what's happening? And in this quiet of the room, I, I, heard, I heard her mumbling under her breath, come on, buddy. Come on, buddy. Come on, buddy. And all three nurses are pinching and poking and prodding and they're, and they're doing everything they can and they move a little bit further away from us and they're still going and still going. And it's one of those things, looking back on that day almost a year ago now, it feels like that moment lasted three hours. I always tell everyone that the labor probably only lasted about two minutes. Whitney hits me when I say that. But, but I tell everyone, in comparison to the moment that just kind of hung in time there for a second, everything else just fades away. Because there's this moment in time when we're just waiting and the room is just deathly quiet. And again, I hear, say, come on, buddy. Come on, buddy. You got this. Come on, buddy. And the second time she says it, Whitney hears her too, and she starts crying, and the room got dusty, and I was crying because someone was cutting onions in the weight room, and you know, and it's this frightening moment until I then heard the most beautiful sound, and it was the only time that sound was ever beautiful, <laughs> of Cohen at full lung capacity screaming. And my heart leapt back into my chest, and everything just seemed right again. And then for the next year, all I've said is, can we get that kid to quit crying? But in that moment, in that one frozen-in-time part of labor and delivery at Meadowview Hospital, I'll always remember how precious 
his life really is. And I, and I, I, I always remember how precious my life is and how precious my family and your life, but for some reason, every time I hold Cohen, every time I think about that day, every time I hear someone say, come on, buddy, I'm reminded of that, that split second in time that lasted for an eternity, and I'm reminded of, of how beautiful life really is. And because of the fact that you're here today, I'm going to go ahead and suspect that you agree with me. That you think that because of the fact that your heart is beating, that you believe your life is beautiful. If you're packing heat in your, on your person or in your car today, don't tell me about it, just nod. And um, if you're packing heat today, it's because you believe your life is so incredibly precious that you'll do anything to protect it. If you care about your kids, if you feed yourself, if you bathe on a somewhat regular basis, all of those things prove to me that you know that your life is precious. And I don't doubt that there are very few people on this earth who don't think that life is so incredibly important. But I also don't think that there are a lot of, don't doubt that there are a lot of people on earth who tend to think that life is pretty dull. Like to me, when you say life, my mind goes to Cohen in the delivery room. When you say life, my mind goes to all sorts of things and places. And I know how important and how precious and how beautiful life is. But to a lot of people, if you talk about life, they go, meh. They heard what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, when he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. And they go, sure. There's even a, a portion of people who, if they hear that, not only largely ignore it, they don't believe it. I was thinking about that verse a lot this week. Jesus says that in, in one of his biographies. He says it in John chapter 10, verse 10. And he says that a couple of weeks, if not a couple of months, before the, the main event of his life happens, before he goes to the cross and he's executed by the Roman government. And I was thinking about that verse because I was imagining after his death what the disciples thought about that verse. Right, The disciples who had been following this guy for three years now, they'd been following him everywhere he went, everywhere he looked, everywhere he, everything he did, they did, everything he said, they followed, and they soaked all of it in for three years, and then one day he gets arrested, he goes on trial, he gets, he gets beaten and flogged, he gets hung on a cross and executed in a very public fashion, and all of the disciples who have given up lives, who have given up careers, who have given up families, they gave up all of this to follow this guy, and on Friday afternoon they find out they, or they see him carried down from the cross and laid in a tomb. And I have often wondered, what happens? You see, what, what happens is that Friday night, Jewish traditions say that it, the next day is the, the, the beginning of the Sabbath, so you're not really supposed to be doing very much. You don't really go out of your house. You don't really do a lot of work. You don't do a lot of things. And so for the most part, what was happening was they most people were hidden away in a room, but the disciples especially, some of the closest followers of Jesus, locked themselves in a room, not just because it was the Sabbath, but also because they were scared to death. Right? 
They were frightened beyond belief because they just saw their leader killed and their only thought might have been, are we next? And if they weren't thinking, are we next, their next thought probably was, what happened to the man we loved? What happened to the man we followed? Right? You've, you've grieved before. You're a, you're a human being with a heart who knows other people, so you have grieved loss before. And you've grieved unexpected loss that came from nowhere, and you know that, that dull, lifeless feeling that sort of overtakes you, and the disciples are sitting around in a dark room hoping no one else comes, and they're just thinking to themselves, what happened? What happened? And they're scared, and they're confused. And I have no doubt that if you ask them to tell the story, they'll tell you that that Saturday hung in the air forever. That they would look at, their, look at the clock and they would say, what time is it? It must be Tuesday already. And I'd say, no, it's just noon on Saturday. Because you know that feeling, because you remember at the time you heard the doctor say the words, inoperable. You know that feeling because you remember the time the doctor said the words, we're sorry, it's terminal. You know that feeling because you remember the time your boss said, we have to downsize, and it really was just kind of a luck of the draw thing. You know that, you know that feeling because you found the note where your spouse should have been in the bed next to you. You know that feeling because more than once you've walked into a funeral home and saw the box at the beginning of the room and thought, that can't be them. And so even if on a small scale, you know the feeling of hopelessness. You know the feeling of that pain. You know the darkness and the despair that the disciples felt that day. But you also know, or you need to know, that the next morning, everything changed. Everything changes the next day, right? Saturday is dark. Saturday is gloomy. Saturday is painful. Saturday is depressing. But... In the immortal words of Tony Campolo, Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. Of the group of people that were gathered there, a couple of the ladies decided enough is enough. I don't want to sit in this room anymore. I don't want to be afraid anymore. We're going to do what we need to do. And so they gathered some spices because they knew they had to prepare his body for burial. And so on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone and rolled away. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, "Why do you look for the living among the dead?" He is not here. He has risen. 
Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day raised again? And they remembered his words. It's this moment, right, where the darkness and the despair and the tears are just flowing and they don't know what else to do and then they show up to the tomb and the stone is gone and the body is missing and the angels say, don't you remember? This is exactly what he said would happen. This is exactly what he said would happen, that he would rise again. And the ladies run as fast as they can back to the room, and they start to tell everyone who heard, everyone who would hear, they'd say, he's alive, he's alive, he promised us life, and now he is alive. And I, and I can only imagine that the disciples are fast rewinding as fast as they can through the last three years, and they're hearing again all of the times that Jesus promised life, all of the times that Jesus promised hope, all of the times that Jesus said bad times would come, but good times will win out. Because for years, everything had been fine. Because for three years, everything was a-okay. Jesus was healing people. Jesus was, was fixing things. He was, he was solving problems. Everything was good. So when he said things like bad things are going to come, hard times are going to happen, they just kind of would ignore it. Sure, whatever. Life's good. Life is so good. And when the darkness comes, those times fade away because all they can think about is the darkness. I read the story this week of a woman named Ruth Dillo. And Ruth Dillo did something that I, I, I can never imagine doing, but so many brave people have done. And she hugged her son as she put him on an airplane as he went to the first desert storm in the early 90s. And she said, I very well knew that that could be the last time that I heard his voice as I told him goodbye. And it wasn't but a few weeks later that, that it came across in, in the form of a letter that the Pentagon was, was deeply sorry and on behalf of the President of the United States, your son has been killed in action. He stepped on a landmine and you can imagine, right? And Ruth Dillow, when she wrote about this experience later, talked about the darkness and the despair, talked about the grief and the pain that came for three days while she was just in mourning. It didn't matter what anyone said. It didn't matter what anyone promised. It didn't matter what anyone, what anyone thought. Her son was dead. But then one afternoon, the phone rang. She said hello through tears, and on the other end, she heard the voice of her son, Christopher, and he said, Mom, it's me. I'm alive. And all the, all the days of despair, all of the grief, all of the tears, all of the angry words fell away as quickly as possible because in that moment, she realized that her grief was wrong. In that moment, she realized that he was alive. And this changed everything. And you can imagine for the disciples in that moment, the switch that had taken place from the 24 hours before to the 24 hours afterwards. 
right? I mean, I mean, you can't even begin to imagine the pain and the, and the, and the cause and the, and the hurt, but all of a sudden they hear he's alive. The angels told us he's alive. He promised us life, and now he's giving life. But here's the thing. Like, I've, I've, I've been around, and I know. And I know that there are people in this room today who say, what's he do? Even if this Jesus thing is real, even if, this, even if that story is true, if this is the life he promised me, I don't want it. And there are, there are people in this room who have been coming to church for their entire life. There are people in this room who this is the first time they've ever heard it. And regardless of who you are, regardless of how you feel, no matter, you at some point in your life have thought, so what? He rose from the dead. Cool. Why would he ever come back here? Because you believe Richard Needham when he said that man's life only has seven phases. Spills, drills, thrills, bills, wills. Oh, I said it backwards. Dang it. Spills, drills, thrills, bills, ills, pills, and wills. And so you believe that that's it. You're a kid. You learn how to live. Then you have your fun. Then you become an adult. Best years of your life were back then. The glory days were when. Now it's just a waiting game to die, right? And so when someone stands on a stage or when someone writes in a book or when someone says, I promise you life, you say, I don't want any more what that is. I, say, I, don't, I don't need any more of that. This is already hard enough. Right? Because, because like there are some of us today who have been living what Mike Bro calls the same old life for a long time. And it's fine. It's nothing amazing. But you know how it is, right? Because you get up at the same old time every day and you turn off the same old alarm clock. You walk in the same old bathroom and you look at the same old face in the same old mirror and you think, Ugh. And then you get in the same old shower, and after the same old shower, you get out and you dry off with the same old towel. You put on the same old clothes. You go in the same old kitchen and grab the same old bowl. You eat the same old cereal that you eat every same old day, and you sit in your, you sit in your chair, and you look at the same old stuff on your same old phone. And then it's time to go to work, so you kiss your same old spouse goodbye, and you drive to work in the same old car on the same old streets, and you park in the same old spot. And you walk in, and you sit at the same old desk, and your same old boss comes in and says the same old joke, depending on whatever day it is that day, and you laugh that same old way, and inside you think, I'm dead inside. And the same old life just continues all day at work, and then you get back in the same old car, and you drive the same old way back home, and you walk in the same old house, and you kiss the same old kids, and you eat the same old dinner, and then you sit in the same old chair, watch the same old TV shows, fall asleep in the same old chair, some of you. Then you get up and you go brush those same old teeth, lay down in the same old bed, ask your same old spouse that same old question, get the same old answer, roll back over. It's okay to laugh. It's cool. Oh, we might not tell that joke in second service. Wasn't that funny? And you set the same old alarm clock and you do the same old thing all over again. 
And so it's no wonder that some of us at times have thought, so what? But I want you to know that what Jesus promised you was anything but the same old life. What Jesus promised you wasn't, you know, TGI Wednesday. Like, that's not how this works. What Jesus promised you was that he would be killed by witness. His murder execution would be witnessed by dozens of people. He would be laid in a tomb where they had to roll a stone so heavy down a hill that no one thought they could ever move it. And then in the middle of the morning, when it was guarded by Roman soldiers, an earthquake would come, shake the place, move the rock, and Jesus, who was dead, who had a spear stuffed in his side, and water and blood came out signifying that he was dead, 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 walked out of the tomb three days later. He did not do that so that you and I could have the same old life. He did that so that you and I could have life and have it to the fullest. And I want to I give you this warning because every time I talk about this, I get a little nervous that somebody's going to like try to go 90 on the way home in reverse. Like, well, life to the fullest, man, let's do it. That's not what Jesus is saying. Okay, Jesus isn't promising, like, just do whatever you want. Life will be great. That's what I promise. When Jesus talks about life to the fullest, somebody's going to try that now, and I'm going to go to jail over it. Like, he told me to drive home going 90. Like, when Jesus says life to the fullest, he's talking about a life that gives meaning and purpose to so many other lives. He's talking about a life that makes a difference. He's talking about a life that changes the world, right? Because if I talk to you enough about life, eventually your response is going to be, I don't really want to live in this world. Have you seen it? Have you watched the news? Have you been online? This isn't what I want. But when Jesus talks about a full life, he's talking about the kind of people who, in spite of the pain, in spite of the struggle, in spite of that turmoil, say, I will give you life. Because Jesus knows something. Jesus knows that this life isn't all there is. He has seen what happens on the other side. Imagine with me that you decide today or some, yeah, today, to go to Carter Caves after church, and you think, hey, it'll be fun, we'll go exploring, and, and you end up, and you're all of a sudden, you're in a cave that you hadn't been in before, you, you got lost from the tour, and you're, you're a little bit, like, nervous, but you're like, hey, it's fine, and you hear the rain come again, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this water just starts coming up. And before you even realize it, there's this, something crazy has happened, and now all of a sudden you're, you're chest deep in water. And this cave is closing in on you, and like, you don't, it's not really moving, but you don't know what to do. And the, the buddy that you took with you looks at you and says, I'll be right back. And so they, they take a deep breath, and they start swimming. And you wait a couple of seconds, and you think, well, they'll be back. We don't know. This might be it. And the water just keeps rising. And you keep waiting and waiting, and they don't resurface. But then all of a sudden, a couple of minutes pass, 
And out from the water comes this friend. And, and now it's up to your neck, and you're both standing like this. But he says, I found a place where we can go, and I think if we can get to this place, then we can get out. You're following that person, right? They were underwater for several minutes, so you know they found a way. They weren't just hanging out playing a trick on you. So you're following them wherever they go, right? This is what Jesus did. Jesus died so that he could go to the place and say, this is the paradise, this is the eternity, this is the home that we are going to forever. And you follow them, and you follow him. Because you realize that what God promised, the extent of the full life that he gave us, wasn't just life on earth, but it was life beyond this earth. It was the hope of heaven eternal. You realize that when Jesus makes this promise and he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. You realize the reality of that because Jesus died and he went ahead and he said, I know what's next and I'm promising you it is better. Heaven is the place where there is no pain. Heaven is the place where there are no tears. Heaven is the place where there is only joy and only gladness. There there is no sorrow. There are no pains. There is no mourning. There is no grief. And Jesus says, I can take you there if you'd follow me. Because you see what happened is the way God originally created the earth was like heaven. Because in heaven, when you're in the presence of God, there is no pain, there is no sorrow, there is no struggle. And so when God originally created the earth, man was walking with God together. And us and God were walking in the same place. But then what happened is because he loved us enough to give us a choice, Adam and Eve chose sin. And so Adam and Eve chose to eat from the tree that he had asked them not to eat. And because of that, there was a divide between us and God. And it didn't matter how hard we worked. It didn't matter how hard we try. It doesn't matter how high we think we can jump. There is no way for us to bridge the gap, to change the divide between us and God. The biggest struggle, the biggest part of the pain here is what's in the middle. Because what's in the middle is hell. And in hell is the opposite of heaven. Hell is the place where there's only pain. Hell is the place where there's only grief, where there's only sorrow, where there's only tears. And so our fate for all of eternity is hell. But Jesus came to give us life. And the life that he promised and the life that he gave us is one where he sacrificed himself on the cross, so that we could walk over the gap, so that we could bridge the divide to, again, be with God for all eternity, so that we could know the hope that springs eternal and the life lived to the fullest that he promised you and me. That's the life Jesus promised. It's not a boring life. It's not a buttoned-down kind of life where everything just goes just right. The life that Jesus promised you and me is a life of hope for all of eternity.
Here in just a moment, um, we're going to ask a few guys to volunteer to, to hop up and to, to serve communion to you today. And while they're doing that, I want you to take the, those few moments and I want you to just take a chance for yourself to reflect. To reflect on what it truly means to have life. Because in order for you to have this life, in order for you to have the life that Jesus promised, the most important thing that had to happen was what? Jesus on the cross. But then after Jesus on the cross comes Jesus walking out of the tomb. So the reason we have life today is because of what Jesus did for you and for me.